the sea was no more. And they saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Well, good morning. Hey, we're so uh, glad that you're here with us. We want to welcome those that are joining us online, wherever they may be, on vacation, as well as though, uh, those that are on the Edgewood campus. And uh, we are continuing a series uh, called Signs as we take uh, kind of a systematic uh, look at uh, the book of Revelation. And so if you're here with us today and you're new to church, uh, listen, I pray that you understand today as you leave the magnificence of God. That's probably going to be the most that you'll understand, but it's worth comprehending. Uh, if you're here and you've kind of been grown up in the church, I think you probably have a similar thought process or maybe a belief that many people in this room have. And that is that when you think about the book of Revelation, it's kind of this mystery that is really just should be left alone. And typically, when you think about the, the book of Revelation, kind of within the church, uh, you have this kind of this thought process uh, that there's 66 books in our Bible, 65 in which we can understand and could be revealed to us, but there's just one that we shouldn't really t- to read or, or really spend a whole lot of time. What's ironic is, is in chapter 1, you see uh, in the book of Revelation that God gives this incredible uh, prologue as he, he begins uh, showing us how John receives this book. And John receives the book because God gives the authority to Jesus in which Jesus gives to an angel. An angel reveals to John in which John said, blessed are those who speak this word, blessed are those who hear these words, and blessed are those who live by them. And the idea is that this book is meant to be read. What's crazy about it is, as we think about this book in chapter 1, it's meant to be read, it's meant to be heard, it's meant to be discerned, and this is the book that we read the least in all of our Bible. And the reason why is because we think that there's so much symbolism and so many things in there that we just can't reveal or can't understand. And, and I'll just tell you that I think that's uh, a misrepresentation of who God is and about how he desires for us to discern his word. And so that's why we're taking a look at it. For some of us in this room, it's the very first time we've ever heard it taught uh, in any of our churches, and, and you're really excited about it. For others of you, you're just like, I just don't think I can understand it, so why even try? Will, will you just lend your heart to what God wants to say? 
And uh, that's all I could encourage you to do. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, let me just say real quick a a couple of things. One, uh, which Kelly and I uh, and our kiddos just got back from a week of vacation. The last uh, like three or four days, I've been trying to recover from whatever happened on vacation, which means just, I guess, too much partying and fun with the kids. I have been like with fever and cough and cold and just junk. And uh, so uh, by God's grace, we're going to make it through. Today, I was going to try to to do two chapters. It's best that we just do one. And so we're going to look at 11 verses. But let me just say this too. Uh, I would highly encourage you this summer to get away. If there's a Sunday in which you don't have any responsibilities serving uh, in one of the ministries or an area here, I encourage you to stay in bed uh, one Sunday and just enjoy family. Uh, we encourage you over the summer to rest up a little bit, to get recharged, because we need all hands on deck in the fall. And I just pray that you would use this time uh, strategically to, to come. And if you want to be encouraged by the word, then please do that. Uh, if you want to s- sleep in one Sunday and just catch it online, please do that. Uh, the bottom line is, is we want you to know uh, that we love you. We appreciate you, and we realize there's lots of you that you have been running hard, and you're weary, and you're tired, and you're just like, I just need a little break. Take a break this summer. Enjoy family. I think family is the very epicenter and is the very foundation-building block of our society. I don't think it's the church. I think the church is the support of that foundation, the building block. I think the family is God's intent of making himself known. And so, hey, do that, please. Amen? And so just know, like, our, our goal is to uh, have you here, but we want you to also rest up, encourage one another, and spend some time doing holy things if you're at the lake together. Amen? Is that cool? I mean, that's fair enough. We want you to go to the lake, but let's do things that please the Lord while we're at the lake. Amen? Cool? Um, and so Revelation chapter 4, uh, let's dive in. So chapter 1, you get this incredible picture of how God uh, hands this book of Revelation down uh, to John, his servant, in which he sees incredible things uh, that says, in a sense, who God is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. You saw that in Revelation chapter 22 as well. He's the beginning and the end. Uh, everything that we see and know and understand, according to Colossians 1, is bookend, bookended with, with, with God. He is outside of space and time. He chose to reveal himself to us. He chose to create a world in which we could find enjoyment and fulfillment in him and being the vice regents, the very uh, second in charge of all that God has created. Yet we went awry very quickly in our Bible in Genesis 3. And ever since, we have been longing to see God in his fullness uh, in which we will one day see. Uh, but according to Revelation 2 and 3, Pastor Brian talked about this last week, that there is a warning to, to seven churches, seven churches that I think are a picture really of the church today in, in many ways. Uh, there is not a problem that you have seen addressed in any churches that you've ever been a part of that John doesn't address with the seven churches. Uh, he, he talks about those that, uh, like Ephesus, have foresaw their first love. Uh, you really got one, uh, the church of Philadelphia, that seems to be doing what they're supposed to do. It's, it's kind ended with this church called Laodicea, which I think is not just a picture of who uh, the churches are. I think is a panorama of history. I think that among those seven churches, I think you've seen those churches revealed from the very beginning in which 
Jesus walked the earth, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and since then the church has been doing its thing. And there have been some that have fallen asleep, there are some who have allowed false teaching to creep in, uh, you had others that they proclaimed the word and they were uh, loving, I-, I think you see that. I think today we're in the last church, which is the church of Laodicea, in which we are a lukewarm, fickle people. We make commitments that we don't keep, we say things that we'll do and we don't do, We are a church where Jesus stands at the door and he knocks and he goes, hey, will you just let me in? And that's where we are today. We're in a church in America where Jesus just wants in the church. But you know who runs the church? The people. The people. Pastors are eating up more quickly now because of Fickle, lukewarm people who want pastors to do things that they're not willing to do themselves. It reminds me a whole lot of Matthew 23, which is a whitewashed tomb. It's a pharisaical type of person who they, what, tie up cumbersome loads on people they're not willing to carry themselves. And so do you realize that in this day and age, that's what we're fighting against? We're fighting against a lukewarm, apathetic faith in which is called the church age, where we live now. And so do you know what that means? It means that there is nothing that is keeping us from chapter four. And so in chapter four, verse one, it says this, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And at the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place after this. And so right there in the very first part, there's a door that's standing open in heaven. I think it's a real great picture of the sheepfold in John chapter 10. Uh, In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And here's what he says. He goes, those that they know me, they're going to follow me. And those who follow me, they're going to hear my voice. And they're going to rightly discern who I am. And you know what sheep do? They follow their shepherd. That's how you can know and discern whether or not you are truly a sheep. Why? Because you're following God in obedience. It's the idea of Psalm 1. You don't, you don't sit in the seat of scoffers and sinners, but you delight and you meditate on the, on the word of the Lord day and night. You're like a tree that's planted by streams of water. You yield fruit. That's the goal. And how do you know that that's happening? According to Matthew chapter 7, those who know God and walk and follow him will bear much fruit. Sheep follow their shepherd. And it's the idea that a door is standing open in heaven to those who follow their shepherd. So what I want you to realize is that there's a door standing open in heaven, but that door is not available to everyone. In the sense of that it's not available to anyone who has some sort of ideological idea about who God is or about what spiritual life looks like. We live in a day and age where we're not just lukewarm in the church, we're lukewarm in society. We think that philosophical ideals, and there are different ways ultimately to the door in heaven, and there's not. There's one way in which Jesus reveals about himself in John chapter 14. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the what? Okay, let's try that one more time. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The idea is is that he is the great shepherd. There's a door standing open for those that he calls and that he conforms to his will and his way. And then John says, and at the first voice, which I heard speaking to me, it sounded like a trumpet. Now here's what's interesting, okay? Uh, Right here is is something that you need to really take a lot of thought captive to. And, And I happen to believe one thing about this verse, and you may disagree, but let me explain why uh, this verse is important. 
In chapter six of Revelation, you're gonna see uh, that something's going to, to be an event that's culminated and ultimately gonna be kicked off. And it's going to be the judgment of God. And it's this thing called the tribulation. It's a seven-year period in which God is going to bring about judgment. According to, to Daniel, uh, you're gonna see that there's gonna be three and a half years that are ultimately gonna be peace and fulfillment. And there's going to be the rise of, of a handful of characters. You're gonna have a, the rise of a, an antichrist. You're gonna have a false prophet. You're gonna see authority given from hand, uh, Satan over to the antichrist. Christ and the fulfillment of all those things. And at the three and a half year mark, it seems that everything in the tribulation period is literally going to go crazy. It's going to break loose. And when I say break loose, I mean there's going to be calamity, there's going to be destruction, and you see a picture of that in Revelation chapter 6. And so when you see this tribulation period, there's a couple of things that you have to think through when the tribulation period is. One, you got to ask yourself is, okay, what is the tribulation? Well, we know it's a seven-year period. The second question, you got to go, who is it for? And if it's for you and I, then we would ultimately be there. Uh, I think if you know and understand and rightly divide all the scripture, I think that the seven-year tribulation period is for those who should have known Jesus, who have heard about the Messiah, but yet they saw him and rejected him according to John 1. That's his own people. That's the Jews. And so the Jews, they saw Jesus. They rejected him. They're the very ones who crucified him on the cross. They rejected him as uh, supreme deity, divine, and incarnate picture of the Father. Jesus said about himself, I am the word. The word is life. He goes, I was there at the beginning, before the foundation of the world. According to Colossians 1, we see that uh, Paul writes to the church in Colossians, and Paul says Jesus was there even when the world was created. Jesus wasn't a divine, uh, he's a divine being. He wasn't created. He has always been, always is, always will be. And so because of that, you got to ask yourself, and this question is, who is this tribulation for? It's for those who have heard about Jesus, who saw him, who crucified him, who rejected him, and God's going to use a seven-year period as a fulfillment of the last sense of a seven-year period. It fulfills all the way back to Babylon and Daniel, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way through ultimately uh, 10, you're going to see all that fulfilled in this tribulation period. Got me? And it's, I believe, for the Jews. So the question you have to ask yourself is, and you've heard people maybe talk about it, is will we be there, meaning the church, people who God has adopted into his family, who weren't rightly his, but he chose to love and conform to his pattern, to his will and his way, will we be there? And the question is, is you just got to look at Scripture, okay? Uh, and so... I personally believe that we won't be there, and that's what you would call a pre-trib rapture, okay? Meaning that before the tribulation begins, the church is going to be raptured out. Perhaps you could say, well, I don't know if it's going to be a pre-trib rapture. Maybe it's going to be a mid-trib rapture. Maybe we're going to be there in the middle, and maybe we'll be raptured out then. Or maybe we're going to see all of the seven years of destruction and calamity, and those who hold fast and hold on will ultimately be saved in the end. And, and for me, I look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and here's why. Paul uh, or John says, I heard a voice, it sounded like a trumpet, and then it said, come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, we see that 
that John is having some sort of an experience in the spirit that is an incredible thing, one that you can't manipulate, one that you can't recreate. But it seems to be this idea in which he is in the spirit and he gets a heavenly perspective that you and I could only dream about. It's not something that you and I are ever going to experience. Why? Because Revelation chapter 22, it's bookended. This revealed word of truth, this final thing has been revealed to John and John reveals it to us and blessed are those who speak it, blessed are those who hear it, and blessed are those who live by it. But the deal is, is this, as you look at this, he says, come up here and I'll show you what must soon take place after this. And so the idea is that you would come up. It seems to be a different experience than Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. It seems to be that he doesn't know whether or not he's in the body or, or, or not. I mean, matter of fact, it, it's very similar to what Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. But here's what I do know. I know that he hears something that sounds like a trumpet, and then he's called up to be with God. And then in chapter 4, you're going to see what he sees. And he's going to describe all the magnificent wonders that his eyes lay hold of. And he's going to try in vivid detail to give us what he sees and the best way he knows how to communicate in his day and time. But here's what it reminds me a whole lot of. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I just want you to hear this. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. You're really good at that. Go ahead and do that. Uh, but it says, but brothers, as Paul writes to the church of uh, to the church of Thessalonica, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, meaning that he's going to eventually bring those who are dead with him. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, he goes, listen, we should not grieve at someone we love and when their physical body wears out. Why? Because Paul says to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. They're with the Lord. The second thing is, is this, is that their, their bodies are in the ground. Got me? But there's going to be a day in which God brings them out of the ground. And you can know that those who are dead, who have fallen asleep, will go with the Lord. Got me? And then he says, and guess what? Those who are alive will also be called with him. And then you see what he goes on to say. And he says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the what? Y'all looking at it? I think it's on the screen for you, okay? With the trumpet of God. It's not. I didn't put that on the screen for you. <laughs> I'm just testing you, okay? With the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the idea is this is that he's going to eventually call us up. And the question is, is what is that? And the scripture, even though you never see the idea of the word rapture, that's where the Greek word comes from, and to be caught up. That's where we get the idea of rapture, to be caught up in the presence of the Lord. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is when is that going to happen? And I believe wholeheartedly that it happens before Revelation 19, where Jesus has a true second coming. And so I believe that the very first time you'll see Jesus in the rapture of the church. Now, I don't want to press that belief onto you too much, but that's what I believe. And I believe it comes from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. As it says, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place after this. I believe that's a correlation between 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. Does that make sense? And so I believe wholeheartedly that before a seven-year tribulation period kicks into motion, that the church will be raptured. 
Matter of fact, one of the reasons I think that the tribulation will be so chaotic is because if you can imagine God who manifests himself now through the church and the spirit of God, can you imagine if the church is gone, what calamity and hardship and ultimately what peace and discernment that we have in the church, if that's taken out of the world, how corrupt does it become? See, I want you to realize that the church is important in this day and age. And though we're a fickle, somewhat half-hearted, lukewarm people, there are some, a remnant of the church in this day and age that are sold out for the Lord, and they make a radical difference in this world. If you take the church out and the Spirit of God out with it, guess what? It becomes a nightmare. And I believe that's what's going to happen. So there's the idea. you got this great wrath to come before it does. I believe the church is raptured out. Then at verse 2, it says, And at once... I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So Jesus, Jesus uh, or I'm sorry, uh, John seems to see this throne in which he sees something, God, sitting on the throne. And as he sees God sitting on the throne, he's going to give us words to begin to describe that. But here's what I want you to realize. When you see the throne of God throughout the scripture, you see multiple things. Uh, you see God's power and authority, and it's demonstrated on the throne. Uh, you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, 18, verse 18, you see it. Uh, or Second Chronicles 18, verse 18, you see it in Job. Uh, you see the place of majesty and honor. You see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. You see that Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne. God's throne is a place of perfect judgment. You're going to see that throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, even in Revelation 21, you're going to see a great white throne. He's prepared the throne for his judgments, which are vast, but are also, listen, holy. What's interesting is God has never made a wrong decision. He has never done anything judiciously that wasn't right. He has never wronged anyone. Why? Because he's perfect. He's all-loving. He's all-knowing. He rightly divides and discerns all decisions he makes, and there's never a corrupt one. He is judicious, but he is perfect in judgment. God's throne is a place of sovereignty and holy. You'll see that even in this chapter as the angels later will literally say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're going to repeat things that you've seen from other angelic beings all the way back to your Old Testament. God's throne is a place of praise. God inhabits the praise of his people. That's his desire. You see that in Revelation chapter 14, Psalm chapter 66. God's throne is a place of purity. There is no sin in God's presence. Never has been and never will be. Revelation 14, 5. God's throne is a place of eternal life. It's where God dwells and he is the beginning of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And you'll see that time and time and time again. But most of all, you'll also know that even when God sits on his throne and he is holy and he is pure and he is majestic and he is judicious, he is a God of grace. And his throne is surrounded by that grace. And so you need to know that God, uh, he is simply waiting now for the day and the hour of the Father to give him the authority to open chapter 5, the title deed, the scrolls, the seven seals of the earth. And when he does that, I believe that everything's going to be kicked into motion. You're not going to have Revelation chapter 5 until you've had Revelation chapter 4. And so what you need to know is, is that it's coming. In verse 3 it says, And he who sat there, meaning uh, those, the one who was on the throne, the picture of God, was in the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. The idea here is this, is that you see God in an unapproachable light. Like you see him and he's majestic and he's holy and you long to describe it, but it's really undescribable. And so John gives us the very best picture of what he can do, but even the throne is surrounded this idea of an emerald, which... 
When you think about a throne, you think about someone who sits on the throne and they do as they please. Is that true? Like, isn't that what a king does? He sits on the throne and he just hands out decrees. But if you think about a king that also gives promises, that means that he'll never utter a word in which he will not fulfill. And even in this throne, as it's just surrounded with jasper and carnelian, these different magnificent colors, there's also this appearance of emerald, which is the idea potentially of surrounded by a kind of a, a bright, unapproachable light that would resemble that of a rainbow. And I think it just reminds you of Genesis chapter 9 and the promises and the fulfillment of God. That he doesn't sit on his throne and just rightly rule and govern, but he never forsakes his promises. He'll never tell you something that he won't do. Why? Because he would then be unlawful and loving and he would be a sinner himself. And so God always keeps his promises. That's what John's trying to help you realize. Verse four, it says, in the throne, there were 24 elders seated on the thrones were 20, uh, on, the, on the throne, there were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones, there were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so one of the questions, when you come to chapter uh, four, verse four, you have to ask yourself, well, who are these 24 elders? They're sitting on these 24 thrones and who are they? Are these angelic beings that are clothed in white? Is it something different? Are they potentially humans? Who are the 24? Are 12 of them the apostles? Are 12 of them leaders of the tribes of Israel? There's a lot of speculation in which here's what I've come to the conclusion of. You don't know who they are, but you can discern what they are. And here's why. Because of their crowns. If you look at the golden crowns on their heads, you'll see occasionally throughout your scripture that an angelic being would have the presence and potentially even a garment that was white. But you'll never see anywhere in scripture that an angelic being has a crown. Matter of fact, do you realize what Paul said about us? We are to run our race as to receive a what? Crown. That's the goal. The goal of the Christian life is that, and the mark of maturity is that we would bear much fruit, that we would grow up, we would work out our salvation according to Philippians 12, or 2 verse 12, that we would grow in him and we would run our race with perseverance, that we'd fight the good fight, that we'd keep the faith, why? To receive a crown. And it's an unperishable crown. And that's the idea here. Angels don't get crowns. Humans get crowns. And it seems that they are clothed in white. It's a picture of Revelation chapter 19. Dressed in fine linen, white and clean. A saint is dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Why? Because we are a picture of a pure and a faithful bride to that of a husband who never fails us and is perfect in every way. And so here it is, these 24 elders have these crowns on their heads. You're gonna see that also again in verse 10. That's how I believe you can know that these elders are people. Now, real quickly, are y'all with me? Kinda? Okay, so here's the deal. I want you to, I want you to hear something, and I want you to be careful because I've spoke on this subject before, and, and I don't wanna get too excited or too animated, but here's what I want you to know. When you and I take our last breath, the scripture says that we are to be absent of the body and be present of the Lord. That is if we are sheep who hear our shepherd's voice. Got that? We know him, we follow him, we're obedient to him. The door is not standing open for everyone, it's standing open for everyone who knows and has abided and is trusted in Jesus. And when you get there, I want you to hear something. Do not believe old Clarence that every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Okay, you and I will never be angels. Our goal is not to be an angel. With all due respect, those who have gone on before you that you love, that you respect, that you long to see again, 
are not angels. They have not become your guardian angel. What are they? If they know and understand Jesus, then that means that they are saints of God. It means that their lives have been redeemed from the pit of punishment. And they now are with God, inhabiting the praise of God with other people. And they, they love him and they serve him and they sing to him and they join with the angelic host and probably these 24 elders in proclaiming the goodness of God. But they're not angels. And here's why. If you remember before creation, in, in the sense of the seven days that we know and God creating man and woman and making us the vice streams of God, there seemed to be an angelic realm already in which we see from our scripture that the angelic realm, part of them had fallen. That's how we have a Satan. That's how you have destruction on the earth. That's how you have the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience. It's because of this charge that took place in the heavens long before we were ever created. Now, here's what's interesting is that when there was a fall, there was never grace. The angelic realm didn't get a second, second chance. And so that's why we see in our New Testament that angels long to understand why it is that you and I would create a similar thing to them in the sense of a sin pattern and trying to usurp God's authority to be like him and we would receive what? Grace. Why is that possible? I think probably the angelic realm is equally as baffled at the other two things. One is, how do they receive grace? And then number two, why don't they live in that grace? Why is it Romans 6.1, they continue to sin that grace would increase? Why is it that they don't take advantage of what God has done for them? Why is it they're so fickle? Why is it they're so faint-hearted? Why is it they're so deceptious? Uh, deception, uh, dece whatever the word is. The <clears throat> Why is it they're so deceptive with their words and their tongue and their actions? Why don't they do what they say they'll do? It's a crazy thing to the angelic realm. Why are their hearts so far from God when their tongues seem to praise him so adamantly? It's a challenge, isn't it, church, to understand that? And here's the deal. The other part of it is, they're going, man, why in the world would they want to be one of us? Why, why would you long to be an angel when God has made you a creation that is perfectly recreated in the blood of Jesus? That's the goal. Walk in that, love that, understand that, and quit posting on your Facebook that another angel has joined heaven. No, there's no idea in our Bible that God is recreating angels by the day but he is recreating people. He's making eyes that are blind to see and ears that are deaf to hear. And as he recreates them, he says, one day I will clothe you in white splendor. I will call you up to be with me and you will live with me forever. That's the idea. Got me? Romans chapter eight, verse 17 says that we're joint heirs with Christ. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy people, a chosen race. Why would we desire anything different? Second Timothy, Paul writes his buddy in chapter two, verse 12, and he goes, we're gonna reign with Christ. The idea is you got 24 thrones and 24 elders sitting on them, clothed in white with a crown on their head. And the crown there is the word Stephanos, which literally means that they ran their race well and they got a crown. And it's not a royal diadem type of crown. It's not a crown with fancy jewels. So you can quit saying that about yourself. Look at all the jewels I'm gonna have in my crown. You're not getting a jewel. What you're gonna get is a crown that says you've been faithful to the very end. You ran your race and you crossed that finish line 
well. That's the goal. Verse 5 says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The idea is a kind of reminder of what uh, you would see, maybe Moses saw at Sinai, this presence of God, this fulfillment at Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. Whatever we know, there's great awe and splendor associated with what is being seen by John. That there, there's peals of thunder and there's rumbling. All of this, in which just reveals who God is. And then you see again the seven spirits of God, which I think takes you back, and I addressed it in week one, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, 2, which is literally the characteristics of the spirit. The spirit is a part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all-encompassing in a sense that you and I cannot begin to understand. I had a conversation with a guy after the very first service, and he goes, hey, man, help me understand these seven spirits. And I go, no, 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 there's one spirit, and there's characteristics of that spirit, which I think are clearly revealed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Please go and study that for yourself. Here's what you need to know, is that the spirit of God sees all things, discerns all things, can roam throughout the earth. And he's looking, just in the case of Job, for those who are faithful. God sees all things, and he does that through the Spirit. And before the throne, verse 6, there seemed to be a sea of glass like crystal. Uh, Commentators are are really questioning, is that really a sea of glass? Is Is it just light glass? What is it? And here's what I've come to determine. We don't know. Okay? Like, so be very careful to try to press into this too much. I, I don't know if it's glass or if it's light glass. Here's what I do know. I know that when you and I are in the presence of God, when we understand his word and we discern it daily, abiding with him and with other people, devoting relationally to the scriptures, holding each other accountable, here's what I do know. I know that your life will be a reflection of that of God. And it'll be like glass. And here's what you get when you get glass that looks like water. Whether it's water or whether it's glass, I don't know. Here's what you do get. You get clarity in which you can actually see a reflection. Aren't we to be a reflection of God? The other thing is peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what our hearts and our lives should desire to have, right? We should love God and rightly discern and divide the word of God in a way in which we live as Christians in a world full of chaos and storms, right? Tossed to and fro, and we, as Paul says, shouldn't be that. We should live with peace and joy, and people ought to characterize our lives by knowing and abiding in Jesus. And can I just confess to you real quickly something? Last night, I probably spent... 20 some odd minutes. My kids um, just said, hey, dad, will you come and pray with me? I, I like had to just have some time to just like shower and like a hot shower in which um, like I just felt crummy. And so I go into there and, and uh, I pray with my kids. They're asleep. They don't even know. Like it looked like dad didn't keep his word because I didn't show up to pray with them. Uh, but as I'm in there, I'm not just praying for my kids. I'm just praying for our church. But most of all, I'm just praying for me. And you know what my prayer is? God, would you just help me? Would you just help me to remind myself of where power comes from? Because I do a ton of stuff in my own power and flesh. Got me? Like, I, guys, I could take this whole chapter, and, and with all due respect, I could fly through it in a way that you would never know if I studied or not. I can, review, I, can, I can do things in my own flesh. God's gifted me in certain areas, and he's done the same for you. And your areas may look different than me, but here's what I want you to realize. Do you know it's a really foolish and absurd thing when we as the church live in our own power? 
and try to do things on our own accord, do you know what you get? You get ripples and you get effects and your life is not peaceful and there's not clarity there. And I'll tell you, I think there's so many of us right now that we're just doing too much. And so one of the reasons I'm pleading with you to rest is not just physically, but just spiritually. Would you just remind yourself of where power comes from? And would you just remind yourself why we as the church need God in our lives? Because he doesn't need you and I. We need him. And I'll tell you, I, I need him. Like, I, I, I need him desperately. And I pray that you would know that and understand that. The latter part of verse 6, it says, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a creature that looks like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like the eagle in flight. Um, you're going to see these angelic beings um, all throughout the scripture. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, would, would give you kind of the idea that they're constantly uh, in motion around the throne. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, uh, you're going to see kind of what the duties of these, these angelic beings are. You're going to see that throughout your Old Testament. You're going to see different pictures of these angelic beings. You'll see it in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, you'll see that there are different instances of them. And many times when you see them, um, you'll, you're going to see what they're saying. They're going to be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, you, you think about these eyes uh, of, of all over their body. And here's what I want you to realize. The reason that you and I oftentimes don't have peace and, 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 and purity in our lives and great clarity is because we don't have eyes to see and to discern. Your worship is prohibited by your inability to see clearly, which is why these angelic beings seem to have so many eyes. So what I mean by that, do you remember in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus sitting with this woman, uh, this Samaritan woman at the well, and, and she's talking, and he says something to her that's interesting, and he says, you worship what you do not know. And I think so many times we worship what we do not know. We say things out of foolishness. I've seen that just here recently. We, even the death of uh, profound people in our society. Uh, I don't know anything about Kate Spade. I've never uh, worn anything that she's made, and I've never owned one of her purses. <laughs> but what I do know is that there have been lots of people who have said lots of foolish things from their inability to see and understand what what God can do in the midst of a situation like that. And here's what I want you to realize is this, is that when you understand who God is, then you'll see clearly. And I think it's a picture of these angelic beings who see clearly. Angelic beings throughout the scripture do a, a variety of different things. One, you're going to see that they're going to worship God. Two, you oftentimes see that they'll lead in worship. Three, you're going to see throughout the book of Revelation that they oftentimes will even carry out God's judgments. And so you're going to see these four living creatures, uh, what appears to be them, in multiple places throughout the book of Revelation, you'll see them again in chapter 6. Um, as they begin to unfold some of the judgments of God. In verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around within, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The idea is this, is that God desires the praises and, and deserves the praises, and the angelic beings will give that. They'll lead in the chorus, and they continually say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Which is one of the reasons that so many of us in here, and I don't have a whole lot of time to expand it, but we go, is that all that heaven's going to be is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Like for some of us in here, you're like, it just seems so dull and so boring. 
And here's what I need you to understand. There's two things you need to understand. Number one, if that's all that heaven was, it would be more glorious than anything you've ever experienced because it'll be a lifetime, an eternity, understanding and enjoying the splendor of God's goodness and grace in a way you've never understood it or be able to rightly discern it. And John certainly hadn't captured the picture of it all. I don't think it's that. And here's why. Because of your timeline. Eventually, when you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, you're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. And the new heaven and the new earth looks vastly different than what you're seeing here in Revelation chapter 4. So you just need to understand there's a timeline in which right now there are elders that seem to be around the throne. And, and in chapter 5, you're going to see what happens after all of these angelic beings continue to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Understand? And so there's a timeline. It's all going to play out. I hope that you'll come and hear it. Now, you think about these angelic beings that are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I heard a few months back, uh, Tater was reading a book, and he goes, hey, there's this guy that he just wrote this, and he goes, what do you think about that? But he says, what if holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty is a declaration of the Trinity of God? Because in the Trinity, there's Father, there's Son, and there's what? Holy Spirit, three and one. What if holy, holy, holy was just a representation of who God is as a triune God? And I was like, that would be fantastic. That's purely speculation, but wouldn't that be awesome? That if you understand who God is in the fullness, is he worthy of our praise? And the answer is, yes, he is. And the verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, remember, they cast their crowns, the Stephanos, right? They cast it before them, and then look what they say. They say, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. That is a, just a, almost a copy of Colossians 1. Everything that we see and know and everything that exists is because of Jesus, was carried out by him. He created all things. He has the ability to recreate in an instant. He is holy. He is pure. He is majestic. He is supreme, and he is worthy of our worship. And I want to close with this quote from Spurgeon because I think it's absolutely fantastic. And so I want you to just listen to it. Because if we could get this, I think we might be the church that God's calling us to be. Spurgeon uh, says, our text, meaning our Bible, says that all cast their crowns before the throne. There are no divided opinions in heaven. There's no sects or uh, sects, not sex, that, that too, or parties, no schisms there. They're all in perfect harmony and sweet accord with one, with one, what one that does all do. They cast their crowns without exception before the throne. Let us begin to practice that, that same unanimity here. As fellow Christians, let us get rid of everything that would divide us from each other or separate us from the Lord. I do not read there in a single time in the scripture. There was a singer elder who invited his, his brother and said, Oh, I wish I were such as one as he and had his crown. I do not read one of them began to find fault with his brother's crown and said, oh, his jewels may be bright, but mine have a more peculiar tint in them and they are greater excellence. I do not read aught of a dissension. They were all unanimous in casting the crowns at Jesus' feet. They were all unanimous in glorifying God. But we live in a day and age where the people rule the church. And you know what they do? They fight for power. They fight for fame, they fight for notoriety, and by golly, they even say things like, man, my crown's going to be so much greater than your crown. 
And the bottom line is none of it matters. Because the end, all we're going to do is cast our crowns at the one, the only one who is worthy of our worship and our adoration. And that is Jesus. The one in which it pleased God to give full authority, Philippians 2, to the one in which every knee would bow and every tongue would confess before heaven and earth. And his name is Jesus. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one, according to John 1.29, who takes away the sins of the world. And he is worthy of our affections. Amen? And so may we quit comparing, quit arguing, quit having factions and dissensions in our church, and we'll just keep our eyes fixed on the one who's worthy of all our worship. Amen? Amen? Amen. I think if we did that, we would live in a greater day and age. We'd make a greater difference in this thing called the church, in which there is nothing holding God back from coming now. Not one person needs to hear, but yet God, in his patience, waits and he's, he's going to give all authority to Jesus, chapter 5, and you'll see it. So read ahead. We love you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for all of this scripture. Uh, God, I pray that you would take it and somehow use it to help us to truly worship you and that our worship would not be rooted in a lack of seeing or understanding. But I pray that nothing we do in this service today would be rash, but all of it would be reasonable. And that we would render our sacrifice to you. God, you hate blind sacrifice. You hate when we worship things we do not know. God, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may we desire to see you, to know you. And God, until the day we get to see you and know you fully, may we not rest from giving praise and honor to you. And may we know that praise and honor is not merely singing in a church service, but is living faithful lives as the bride of Christ. We thank you. We love you. And everybody said amen. Amen.